This is Church History in 10 Minutes, where you can learn everything you need to know about church history in 10 minutes or less. My name is Aaron Lamb. I'm the lead pastor at Waleska First Baptist Church, and I teach New Testament and theology at the Global Institute for Theological Training. On this episode, we will take a look at the church in the second century, and we'll see why Tertullian believed that the blood of the martyrs would be the seed of the church. So last week we saw how the apostolic age came to an end during the reign of the emperor Domitian. And the foundation of the church had been built, but now for the first time the survival and the strength of the church would not rest on the backs of those who had had direct contact with Jesus. Nerva succeeded Domitian in 96 AD, and in 98 AD he was replaced by the emperor Trajan. Trajan would take Rome into the second century, and for the church, the second century would be absolutely critical to its survival and growth. Domitian had officially made Christianity illegal in the empire, but Nerva and Trajan had really not carried out any policies against Christians. But then in the year 111 AD, there was a man named Pliny that became the governor of Bithynia, which is on the northern shore of what's modern-day Turkey. And this was an area that was highly concentrated with Christians. And Pliny was a student of Roman law, and he wanted to, he wanted to follow the law to the letter. And so Pliny begins uh, a series of correspondence back and forth with the emperor Trajan, uh, asking what his policy towards the Christians ought to be. And Trajan tells Pliny that essentially the pursuit of Christians was too costly for the empire, and so he tells them that he's not to pursue the Christians. But, Trajan says, if someone were to accuse a Christian, then he would have to follow the, the mandate of the law. He would have to bring them uh, before a, a trial, and they would have to be punished for their crimes. And the punishment, by the way, was death. And, and Trajan's policy towards Christians really lasts uh, for over a century. Now, needless to say, Christian leaders were absolutely outraged at this policy. Uh, Tertullian, who was a Christian leader at the end of the second century, actually commented on the inconsistency of Trajan's policy. And he said this, he said, this policy refuses to seek Christians out as if they were innocent but it orders that they be punished as if they were guilty. It pardons, and yet it is cruel. It ignores, and yet it punishes. And it's under this policy that many Christian leaders are martyred. In fact, Ignatius, the bishop of Antioch, was condemned and put to death under this policy. And this policy does two very important things for the church. First, it made martyrdom a constant reality for the church. And martyrdom, as strange as it may sound, became this catalyst for exponential growth in the church. So that was one very important part of this. And the second uh, is that this policy created a culture of defense in the church. And here's what I mean by that. 
Christians were now being put on trial regularly for their faith. And so they were being called on constantly to give defense for their faith and practice. And this created a culture of defense. So people began to study doctrine. Really, for for the first time, the common person was studying doctrine in the scriptures, and they were reading the scriptures with the aim of defending their faith. And in fact, many Christian leaders began actually writing out these defenses or, or apologies, as they came to be known, before they even went to trial. And these Christians came to be known as apologists. And some of the earliest apologists uh, that we see in church history uh, are the apologists like Quadratus, who uh, was martyred in 117 AD, or Aristides in 137 AD. And later there were more widely known apologists like Justin the Martyr, who uh, later in the second century during the time of Marcus Aurelius uh, was martyred. So uh, we see all of these apologists begin to, to sort of accumulate and they begin to do this work of defending the faith. And the work of these apologists helps form the basis for early Christian doctrine. And much of it is still actually used in defense of Christian orthodoxy today. So as the second century progressed, the church realized that if it was going to survive and if it was going to thrive, then there would need to be more than, than just these apologies as it pertains to doctrine. They needed, they needed more. There were several major heresies that were beginning to gain a lot of steam in the empire. And so church leaders knew that they would need something more than just defenses of the faith. They would actually need a true system of orthodox doctrine to help defend against even heresies that were, that were beginning. So Hadrian became the emperor of Rome in 117 AD, and his reign saw the rise of two major heresies that really dominate the second century, and those are Gnosticism and Marcionism. Gnosticism had been around for decades, but during the, the second century, it had developed into this major heresy that was causing all sorts of trouble within the church. And the Gnostics essentially denied the deity of Christ, and they believed in this sort of secret knowledge that, that was passed down through the ages, and it was necessary for salvation. So they really denied orthodox soteriology, which is, which is salvation, what, what we believe about salvation. Marcion's followers, followers, on the other hand, actually rejected the God of the Old Testament as being not even the true God. They said Yahweh was an inferior God, and he was a God of anger and jealousy and judgment. He's not even the God, the true God, and, and they, they sort of discarded the Old Testament and even discarded many New Testament passages that referred to the Old Testament, that referred to Yahweh. Uh, and so they, they really taught only, uh, mostly the Gospels, and, and, and even there, only the parts of the Gospels in which the Old Testament wasn't being quoted or referred to. Uh, and, and so you can see how these, uh, how these heresies early on really begin to cause a lot of issues. So the church responded to these heresies in several different ways. The first way was that the church began to organize the canon of Scripture. So they understood that in order to settle on a unified orthodox doctrine, they would have to actually agree on which books belonged in the canon of Scripture. So they set out to, to at least begin that process. The second thing that they did is the church began to develop creeds or, or statements of basic belief. 
And the first creeds that we have were very simple, but they stood in obvious contrast to the growing tide of of heresy. So, for example, the Apostles' Creed, which was uh, first, well, the first recorded use of of that uh, creed was in 150 AD. It was a direct objection to the heresies of Marcionism. And if you actually read through the Apostles' Creed, with an eye towards the Marcion heresies, you'll see that it's, that it's a direct response to it. So they develop these creeds and they begin teaching these creeds. The third way that the church responded to these heresies was by establishing, or, or trying to establish in some cases, apostolic succession in the most ancient and well-known churches. And this is essentially what apostolic succession is. The idea was, if we can draw a direct line between our leadership now and the apostles, then we can claim to have authority. And here's the deal. In some churches, that was very easy to do, and it was verifiable. For instance, in the church of Antioch, or in the church of Jerusalem, or the church of Rome, those were were pretty easy to, to sort of trace them back and to establish that. Other churches were not so easy, and so the Christian leaders of the day took some, some liberty, or in some cases a lot of liberty, in, esta- in establishing those lines of succession. But they believed that that was going to give them authority to actually standardize Christian doctrine and to say this is what Christian doctrine is because we have this apostolic authority. And the final way that the church responded to these heresies was by producing systematic theological works. And this was really the first time that this had happened. Nobody had really taken the Bible and sat down and said, okay, what system of belief does, does this Bible, you know, give us? And, and so this was the first time that that was taking place. Irenaeus of Lyons was one of the first true theologians of the church. He was the first, he was one of the, the pioneers who set out to do this. And he wrote two theological works in the middle of the second century that are still uh, many in use today. The first is called Demonstration of Apostolic Preaching, and essentially Irenaeus in that work summarized and systemized the theology of the apostles. He went through uh, the apostolic writings, he went through the the Gospels and and the Acts accounts, and he decided to summarize and systemize uh, the work of the apostles. The second of his uh, works is called Against Heresies, and this is a work where he just tees off against the popular heresies of the day, including Marcionism and and Gnosticism. Uh, there were some other theologians from the second century. Uh, towards the end of the second century, you have Clement of Alexandria, uh, who has some very Alexandrian flavor to his writing, but he wrote, among other things, uh, a work called The Exhortation to the Pagans, uh, where he basically believed that if, if one were to create a logical and reasonable enough uh, demonstration of our faith that, that even the pagans would, would believe, uh, and then there was another that we've already mentioned briefly, and that was Tertullian of Carthage. And he wrote a couple of famous works, for example, on baptism or the prescription against heresies. And you can see sort of a theme in all of these works, and that is their desire was to establish systemized doctrine and theology for the purpose of defending against heresies. Now, in 138 AD, Antonius Pius became emperor of Rome, and Irenaeus wrote during his reign. Uh, during this time, also Polycarp of, Smart, uh, of Smyrna was burned at the stake. Uh, it was also during this period of time that Montanism became uh, a thing. <laughs> and Montanism, the best way for us to explain Montanism is it was kind of a, a, akin to modern-day Pentecostalism, and it became a very popular heresy among uh, poor and rural communities. 
Uh, And then in 161 AD, Marcus Aurelius became emperor of Rome. And Marcus Aurelius was unusual because he persecuted Christians, but not because of what they believed. If you read Aurelius's writings, he, (laughs) he persecuted Christians, not because of what they believed, but because he believed they were unreasonable. He believed that they were obstinate to use his word. Um, so when Marcus Aurelius would put Christians on trial, uh, and he would essentially ask them to do a number of things, he would ask them to curse Christ, he would ask them to recant of their faith, he knew that these were things that, that their faith, you know, sort of told them not to do, and he would tell them, if you'll just do these simple things, I'll let you free. And they refused, and so he would put them to death, and, and he believed that it was just Foolish and unreasonable, unreasonable for Christians to be so stalwartly devoted to their religious beliefs. So one famous story that comes from this uh, time period during Marcus Aurelius's reign is the martyrdom of Felicitas and her seven sons. Uh, Felicitas was a widow who worked in the church, and she had seven sons. And Marcus Aurelius, uh, essentially at her trial and in the days immediately following, had each of her seven sons killed in front of her in an attempt to get her to recant her faith and curse Christ. And she never did. And ultimately she was martyred as well. And her final words to the emperor before she was tortured and executed were these. She said, while I live, I shall defeat you. And if you kill me in my death, I shall defeat you all the more. (laughs) Now, (laughs) Marcus Aurelius also had the well-known apologist Justin put to death. And Justin had founded a school in Rome where he taught what he called the true philosophy, which was essentially Orthodox Christianity, and he became very popular in this school. And so Justin entered into a formal debate with one of the emperor's best philosophers, and he defeated him uh, in a very clear defeat. And shortly after, he was arrested secretly, put on a very speedy trial, and then executed. Marcus Aurelius was followed by Commodus and then by Pertinex and Didius Julian. And during this time, Christians had relative peace in the empire because Rome was tied up in civil war and some other things. But in uh, the year 193 AD, Septimius Severus becomes emperor of Rome. And his reign would set off the most severe persecution of Christians to date. And it would be a persecution that would last nearly a century. But as the second century came to a close, the church had grown not only in number, but now in its doctrinal strength and purity. Countless men and women gave their lives to help secure the future and health and growth and establishment of the church. But as Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. On our next episode, the final Roman persecution of Christians, and the single most important moment in church history. Would it be for the better, or would it be for the worse? 